text to get to, so why don't we stand one more time together as a congregation and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are going to be finishing off the letter today. Beginning in verse 25, this is what the Word of God says to us today. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray one more time. Father, again we come to you. Again we seek you. Again we petition you. And in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, even here in this text, we ask that through prayer, Lord, we would be strengthened that our church would be strengthened, that I would be strengthened, that you would strengthen us in our inner man. You would give us the strength and the grace, give us the conviction, Lord, that we need as a church to continue in unity. And with your blessing, Father, we pray that you would bless our church, strengthen our church, that our, our church through its unity would use that unity for the single purpose of glorifying and magnifying you and of making much of you, and of furthering your gospel in the world. Use us to that end, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today I want to look at the subject of church unity, which is a precious topic for pastors to preach on, for the church to be exposed to, and for our church to uh, to be reminded of that. It's a familiar theme because it is a familiar theme in the Word of God. Um, scripture repeatedly emphasizes this issue of unity uh, from uh, the, 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 the actual unity that exists on an individual or in, invisible and in a spiritual level, the fact that we are united together in the bond of peace through the bond of the Spirit all of God's people through all time that have ever been called, chosen, elected, predestined unto the glory of His grace, all of the, of the people of God that will reside in heaven forever together. Uh, the, the, the church has unity. There is a spiritual unity that exists in the Christian church, but also at the practical, let's say at the local level. At the local church level, there's also continual need for unity. There's continual call for unity. There's a continual emphasis on unity because at the local level, at the practical level, at the local church level, that is when that invisible spiritual unity can be fragmented. It can experience division. And the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians as he was on his way to visiting him, he said, see to it that there are no divisions among you. So for the Apostle Paul, it didn't matter what the extant uh, reasons were. It didn't matter what the extant issues were. It didn't matter what was happening. It didn't matter who was involved. It didn't matter what the, what the, uh, the, the, the circles and the factions and the groups of people and the teachers and what was going on or what the conversation was about. For the Apostle Paul, it was unthinkable that the body of Christ, that, that Christ united through His own mercy and grace, that the body of Christ should experience ongoing and unhealthy division. I say unhealthy because the Apostle Paul himself says in 
2 Corinthians that divisions are actually at times necessary. There can come those times in the church where division is a prerequisite to unity, where we need to divide over conviction, over truth, over doctrine. We need to unite, uh, or rather we need to divide over, let's say, a sin issue in the church until the church experiences purity, thereby uniting on the ground of purity, uniting on the truth, all of those things. I mean, there is no, uh, there is no overstating the matter that it is God's will for His church to be united. Uh, really quickly, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. This is a text that we've gone to time and time again, but to show you, the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul, as a missionary theologian among the early church, would visit these churches sometimes, not for long. Sometimes he'd spend a year and a half there, just like he did with Corinth. Sometimes he'd be there maybe for a couple of months, like he did with the Thessalonian church. And sometimes he'd be there for, you know, uh, six months or, or weeks at a time. Paul's time with the churches was limited. And one of the things he had to do is he had to set in place what would make for a successful church when he departed. And so constantly to these churches, the Apostle Paul would emphasize their need for you, really the reality of unity and the need for unity. And look at how he does that here in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, see how oftentimes he'd be even taken away from the church. Sometimes he couldn't get to the churches because he was imprisoned. So he says, I, as the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, plural, you plural, the personal pronoun there is in reference to all the called. You have all been called, that is, you have been effectually called through the gospel to salvation. And those that are called are those that need to be united. But he says that those that are called were called within, uh, he says, uh, with the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, and that's the key word, brothers and sisters, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And to talk about the unity that actually exists, he says there is one body, one Spirit. So notice the symmetry there. Just like you cannot divide the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is one Spirit, there is also one body. You cannot and should not and ought not divide the body of Christ. Just as you were also called into one hope. We have one great final eschatological hope. It says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Time would fail us, obviously, to get into the particularities of that text there because that is really not our uh, text before us today. But it shows us that Scripture often gives us these texts on unity repeatedly over and over because if there's anything we need is to be reminded concerning unity. Now, if unity is the overarching theme that I'm saying is here, if you go back to Thessalonians, because I think what's going on here is Paul is sort of uniting the church, giving exhortations to the church of the things that would unite them and would produce that unity. So I want to take these topical points one at a time. Number one, therefore, uh, he's going to talk to us about prayer. See that verse 25? Brethren, Pray for us. Uh, that's such a good 
text for so many reasons. But let me just say, therefore, that our first point is this. Unity through prayer. If we ask the question, how are we going to achieve unity in the body of Christ? I would say one of the key components to our unity is prayer. It's really hard to be a divided church if we are a prayerful church. It's really hard that if we come together in the spirit of prayer, it is hard that we would divide in the spirit of division. See, prayer is meant to bring us within the veil and into the presence of God. In other words, it's where we ought to be most vulnerable with God and most transparent with God and with one another. John Owen said, I would rather learn from men about their theology concerning their theology and what they really believe by their prayers than rather than by their writings. In other words, what he's saying is that It's hard to hold a facade when you are claiming to be in the presence of the invisible God, addressing the invisible God. Prayer has a way of making us remove our masks and to be vulnerable and real. Paul's prayer request here is an amazing thing. If you think about who is asking for prayer, who he is asking for, to pray for him, right? And what the dynamic is here. I mean, this is Paul asking for prayer from a church that he founded. You see that? There is no delusions of grandeur for the Apostle Paul. It's not as if I am your spiritual superior. I am at a higher spiritual state than you are and am somehow above the need for prayer. No, 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 no. In one sense, prayer is a confession. In one sense here, prayer is a confession of our weakness, of our inadequacy, of our absolute need for prayer. And it also reminds us, brothers and sisters, that as we pray for one another, we unite as a spiritual body, we become the body that God intended us to be. Our unity as a spiritual body organism or what Paul calls a living organism, a holy temple to God. That's what prayer ought to produce in the church. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, that unity in the body of Christ, this was, Paul, this was Jesus' own prayer. In his high priestly prayer, this is what he said in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. You see the extension of this prayer? He's not saying just, well, this is just for the apostles. That's what he's saying. He says, this is for not just the apostles. This is for everyone that will believe in me because of their word. And that comes down to this very moment right now. Because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the words of the apostles. So that is, that is like an, a sense of general prayer, a universal prayer for the whole church throughout all ages for all time. And what's Jesus' prayer? That they may all be one. See, in one sense, there is no greater contradiction than to have a divided church. We We confess the wrong thing when we are divided. We are a testimony to the wrong wrong doctrine when we are divided. And division of the church, sadly, causes skepticism, unbelief, and atheism in the world. It's just a bad testimony for us to be bickering, 
being divided, backbiting, gossiping, the things that make for division. Based on Jesus' prayer for the church, there should be no division for the church. This was something that Paul always maintained constantly. And I just was amazed as I was going through this. I was like, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. Unity, 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 unity. It's like, this is not Paul sounding like a, just that he sounds like a broken record, but this is Paul hitting on something that is so critical for our Christian life that we apparently can't do without it. We need to be reminded over and over and over and over. 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, Brethren, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete. That's a statement that's actually found in the Thessalonians letters. In the same mind, in the same judgment. That's remarkable unity if you think about what's being said there. See, Paul's request for unity reminds us that the reason why he wants unity in the church is because he wants effective uh, uh, evangelism in the church, missions in the church, ministry in the church. Let me give you one example. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. This was, you know, the the Philippians were really exemplary in many ways, but one of the ways that they were exemplary was that in their unity, their unity was not just so that Christians will get along. Their unity was so that they could further the gospel. Unity went somewhere. It wasn't just to have a a church that works like a well-oiled machine. It was so that the church, when it functions well, when it's working well, when it's healthy, is effective to spreading the gospel. That's the whole purpose. I thank my God. This is verse 3, chapter 1 of Philippians. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in, in, in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That's why you need to be involved in church. That's why it's not just enough to show up on Sunday. That's why it's not just enough to check the check off the box, to say, I did my part. That's it. I did what people expect. I did what the pastor wants me to do. I did what the person next to me wants me to do so they get off my back and stop bothering me with small groups and prayer meetings and evangelism night and those kinds of things. No, but, 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 but further the gospel. That's what it's all about. The unity of church, like I said, it's a lot more than just getting along. Our unity is the precondition for the effectiveness of our witness. That's what it is. It's a precondition for the effectiveness of our witness. If we do not walk together, we will not last. That's what Amos says. House divided will not stand. That's what Mark says. Can the members of the body say to one another, I have no need of you. Again, remember who's asking for prayer in this text. Brethren, pray for me. He says, pray for us there, himself and his, uh, his companions, Paul. And what, what was the prayer for? Well, you can always guarantee that when the Apostle Paul's asking for prayer, he's not asking for prayer because, you know, he needs a better job or he needs to find a spouse or he needs to, you know, upgrade his latest, you know, material possession or whatever, you know. That's not the kind of prayer request that Paul needs. Paul needs prayer so that he can remain strong 
so that he can speak with boldness the gospel as he ought to speak, so he can remain a witness to the end, so he can remain faithful to the end. The Apostle Paul is requesting prayers for missions. He's requesting prayer for missions so that he can take the gospel to the ends of the earth where Christ is not even named. It's all of that. It's a total picture. Remember in First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, all the way to verse uh, 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul says, look, it got so bad on the mission field at one point, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. In other words, our own mind and heart was so convinced that we were going to die that it, it was imminent. Uh, we, we had the testimony within ourselves. It was like my heart was telling me, you're dead, man. And you're not going to make it out of this one. And he says, but they depended on God. And he says this to the Corinthians. He says, but you also in helping us through your prayers. Through your prayers. What's our view of prayer? Do we think prayer is just a sentimental token thing that we utter at the beginning or at the end of a meal or at the beginning or the end of a meeting? No, prayer is communion with God. Like I said, it is also a confession of our humility. It's it, Paul, when he says, brethren, pray for us, what he's saying is, I am dependent on God. I, I, I need your prayers. It's expressing need. It's expressing inadequacy. It's expressing weakness. The very things that we are not allowed to express in our culture today. Because they're not prized. They're not allowed. They're not valued. They're not esteemed as that which is makes for a Mentally, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally healthy person. But who cares what the world thinks? If we see ourselves in the light of God, we are far worse than we know. We are far more desperate for sanctification than we know. We are far more desperate for virtue than we know. We are far more desperate to be conformed into the image of Christ and to do and to live and stimulate one another for love and good works, etc., etc., etc. We are so desperate for God to keep us. We're dependent on Him. We are inadequate in ourselves. Prayer unites the church because it forces us to confess and to recognize our spiritual needs before one another. It reminds us that we are surrounded by spiritual adversaries. And it forces us to look up to where all of the answers are found and from whence our victory comes. Peter provides us with a very helpful parallel here before moving on to our second point. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to this. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Isn't that remarkable? Boy, do we need that. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And speaking of love, let's move to the next point in this uh, epistle. Look at what he says here. Brethren, pray for us. And then another uh, short, pithy, potent exhortation. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And so if you're sitting there going, yeah, what's the deal with the holy kiss? Are we going to revert back to that in the 21st century? First of all, many people around the world have never left. In other words, it's a cultural greeting. 
Uh, I know it's a little bit funny for us to talk about greeting one another with a holy kiss. We don't really do that unless you yourself are from a different culture. But back then in in the ancient Orient and in the ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, 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 greeting somebody, which what we can call the the kiss greeting, was just a, a, a social norm. It was just a social greeting like giving each other a handshake or a hug or bowing to one another. It's just dependent on culture. Uh, I remind you, uh, when I was in Africa, I was startled, uh, shaken to the core, really, when I came to realize that during my time in Africa, I'd be holding hands with African men. Uh, And not just like for briefly, but like for a long time. So I came to find out that in Africa, that's kind of how you greet one another. You 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 don't just shake hands. You shake hands and then you hold hands as you talk. I thought, okay, I, 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 you know, I have a hard time holding another guy's hand for more than a second. You know, uh, and this guy wants to hold my hand for half an hour while we talk about theology. <laughs> wow. Well, as taboo as it was for me to be sitting there holding, at times, two men's hands at the same time. <clears throat> no, thankfully, no pictures of that anywhere. I think Trish is circulating any pictures of that anywhere. But it may puzzle our Western mind to think about the holy kiss as something that Paul is sort of introducing some weird ritual, but he really isn't. If anything, uh, the fact that people greeted one another with a kiss uh, is one thing. The fact that the Apostle Paul dignified the gesture, dignified the greeting by calling for a holy kiss, what he was essentially saying was, if you practice the cultural norm, make sure that you sanctify the cultural norm. And that's the way that we should be in all of our regards to cultural norm. But the deeper thing here, because what I'm suggesting to us based on that uh, greeting is the Apostle Paul's, uh, his, the emotion behind the request. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss means that he loves the church. And so this is point number two. Not only unity through prayer, but unity through affection. Turn with me back in this letter. Go to chapter 2 because in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has already expressed his his, uh, affection, his love, his deep, sincere love. And I thought, okay, well, if we're not going to greet each other with a holy kiss, (laughs) then what's the principle behind it that we can all practice without getting embarrassed? And you know what it is? Being affectionate towards the church. Loving the church. And that's exactly what Paul expressed to the church. Beginning in verse 7, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, he says, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. See, guys, the Apostle Paul, this is what's so amazing to me about his life. We talked today about Puritan theologians. I think the Puritans were some of the greatest theologians that ever lived. I'm in constant conversations with theologians. Only the conversation really goes only one way. I read their books, so they're talking to me. I can't really talk to them. But I'm, I'm constantly being uh, you know, bombarded with the thoughts and the works and the writings and the ministry of theologians. But the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest theologian of the Christian church ever, save the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, was so balanced when I think of Him. 
You know, what do you think of a guy who is the greatest theologian of the church, probably some cold, austere, you know, he'd be standing up there next to the, have you seen the statue of the reformers? It looks all cool and tough, right? Calvin's long beard, you know, looks like a robot, you know, but, uh, and what? And Paul's going to be standing there next to them with that sort of stern look. I don't know about that. Paul was a really emotional guy. Paul was a very affectionate guy. I think Paul, I think Paul could be easily hurt. I think Paul was very sensitive when it came to inner relationships. He displays that in his letters. He talks about that. He talks about having sorrow being caused upon him. He talks about being betrayed. He talks about those things. He talks about his concern for the churches. It kept him up at night, probably gave him ulcers. Talk about burnout. The Apostle Paul was always burdened by the concern, the well-being of the church. And it came from this heart right here. He loved the church. He had such a fond affection for the church. And look at what he says. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. That's the graph. That's the proof in the pudding. It's not just words that Paul imparted to the church. It wasn't just a bunch of statements. It was his own life. He put his life on the line. Not only did he put his life on the line to reach them, he put his life on the line to minister to them, to, to, to disciple them, to nurture them. Literally, multiple times where ministering to a church uh, would cost him his life. The Thessalonians understood this. They knew that when he arrived at Thessalonica, he was chased out of town. And then eventually what happened is they had to kick him out of there. He had to go over to uh, Berea. And when he wasn't allowed in Berea anymore for the same persecution reasons, he had to flee and go to Athens. And that was the way the life went for the Apostle Paul. And what drove the man? What made him climb out of a window, get in a basket, and be lowered down by a rope? It was his affection and love and concern for the church. Ah, Christ gave the Apostle Paul not just a mind, ooh, a mind that that just holds our attention for centuries, but he gave the Apostle Paul a heart that holds our example or should hold our example as well. What's the nature of this affection? Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, and ask yourself today, write it down, discuss it over dinner tonight, confront yourself with this question. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, as you think about your love for the church, your commitment to the church, your love for one another, is it this? Philippians 1, 8 says, for God is my witness. Well, think about sobriety. This is not just a, this is not just a, some, some sentimentality. This is not just a token prayer or something. This is not just, you know, Christianese or something, some cliche, just saying the, the right Christian thing. Like, God bless you, brother. No, this is Paul taking a solemn oath, right? That God is his witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so the question I'm asking is, is your affection for the church the affection of Christ Jesus? In other words, is it affection that conforms and comports to the example and to the standard that we see in Jesus Christ himself? His view of the church, his view of his people, is that our view? It ought to be. And because Christ is the plumb line, because He is the paradigmatic lover of the church, 
our affections should be, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, sincere. It should be reverent, Philippians 1, 9. It should be stimulating, Hebrews 10, 24. It should be gladdening, Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. It should be humble, Philippians 2, 3. And it should be selfless. That's how you know, am I being like Christ in my love and affection for the church? Are you humble, selfless, kind? You have the fruit of the Spirit manifesting itself. Again, to the Philippians, Paul is seeking to bring unity to a church through following Christ's example of love and affection and example that we should all follow. Now, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want to spend a little time there because in one sense, it is to the Philippians that Paul gave what we could call the very Magna Carta of unity because it reveals to us the very mind of Christ on unity. And this is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I say the mind of Christ because of this, and I've often pointed this out to people. Look at verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. Verse 5 is very important because it says, Have this attitude in yourself, or you could even translate that, this mind. Have this mind or attitude in yourselves. Watch this. Which was, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the question, the hermeneutical, exegetical question before us is verse 5. Does verse 5 go with verses 1 through 4? Or does verse 5 go through verses 6 through 11? Which one is it? I don't know. I'll give you some time to decide. <laughs> because people rack their brain on which way do we go with this? Is this concluding a thought or is this launching us into a different thought? Of course, you could say both, but that doesn't you just kind of weaseling out of it. You've got to make an exegetical decision on where does verse 5 go in the text. I say it goes with the preceding. I believe what Paul is saying here is that the mind of Christ is revealed in what he has already said. Look at beginning of verse, uh, and it prepares us for what comes. So I'm trying to, now I'm trying to appease both sides of the crowd here. But look at what he says, verse 1. There, What I'm saying is that verses 1 through 4 is an exposition of the mind of Christ. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. If, now, now, you see these if statements. If this, if this, if this. right? These are a class conditional question that assumes a positive answer. In other words, it assumes it to be true. In other words, when he says, is there any encouragement in Christ? What he really means is, since there is encouragement in Christ. Brothers and sisters, look at me. Isn't there encouragement in Christ? Brothers and sisters, is there, is there not consolation of love? Is there not fellowship of the Spirit? Of course there is. Those are realities in the church. If any affection and compassion, Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Oh man, I wish I could just stay right here. Because this has given us everything. It's given us everything. From the motive to the mission. From the motive of love to the mission of the purpose of the church. Do nothing. You want to talk about the mind of Christ. Just think of the cross. Think of the cross. Think about how verse 3 is an exposition of what happened at the cross. And the entire life of Christ. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The man on the cross emptied himself. 
He did nothing from selfishness. He did nothing from conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. He was our substitute. He sacrificed himself. Greater love has no one than this, than one lays down his life for his brethren. Amen? That's love, and that's what Christ did, and that's his example, and that's an exposition of his mind. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Oh, brothers and sisters, I've got news for you. You live in a, in a culture that is, that is, you're under, we are, we are under constant, you know, mind conditioning, if not mind control. I can prove this by the fact that my latest trial, I purchased a new cell phone, and that taught me a whole lot about, what, what did he say here? Looking out for your own interests, your data plan, your insurance, you know, your memory and gigs, and, you know, that's as far as my technological savvy language goes. But, you know, it's all about you and how, what color and what style and how big the screen and which case and everything else. Everything about our culture is about you and what you can do to better you. <laughs> and when we hear those kinds of things, we are actually getting not the mind of Christ, but the mind of the devil. Everything is about you, you, you. The mind of Christ is all about the last shall be first, first shall be last. It's all about being the servant to all. That's the mind of Christ. But lest we run out of time, the next principle that I want us to point out, that I want to point out to you here is in verse 27, and that is being united through Scripture. He says, I adjure you by the living by the Lord. To have this letter read to all the brethren. So apparently in the early church, these letters, you want to know how it, how it was working, is that Paul would write for Thessalonians, and eventually what would, he would want is he would want the letter read to all the brethren, and even some of the letters are, are said to have been read among all the churches. And so these precious letters would be circulated around the community of the, of the early church. And... Um, that's what their purpose was. But what I find to be so remarkable here is Paul's tone. Because he switches to a tone that is extremely sober. It's very serious. And I think what it is, it's born out of a pastoral concern that the church follow through with his admonition, his instructions. These are not just, uh, this is another case for, listen, listen carefully now. This is another case for what I'm arguing here is that this is another case for why these little endings at the end of the epistles don't fall asleep. These little endings are critical. They're important. There's something very valuable here. How do I know that? Because Paul uses a Greek word here, namely the, 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 the word I adjure you, which is an uh, archizo. An archizo is a Greek word that's only used right here in the entire New Testament. And outside of this, what you see is that the Septuagint actually uses that for a Hebrew word, Shabbat. And Shabbat is used in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, when uh, there Nehemiah exhorted the Jews and he told them to, he, sa he said that, that, that they would swear by God that they would, um, that they would not uh, intermingle with the pagan nations. And so what, what, what this is, is this is a solemn injunction by the part of the Apostle Paul. 
He could use no greater language than basically telling the church, you need to covenant with me. <laughs> that you, you need to make a covenant. You need to take an oath that you will read these precious words to the church, to all the brethren. Don't let anybody sleep. That's why it just bothers me so bad when you're not here. On Sunday, because these are precious words, I don't want to just like, go read it to them. Where are you at? You're at home. Can we take it? Can we, Robert, can we live stream it? How do we get it in? How do we get it to them? To all the brethren? That's just a greedy thing that pastors have. Ah, hopefully I'll never lose it. I want everyone here that can be here. Man, unless you're really sick or something's really wrong... Be at church and be exposed to the letters, to the words, to the writings, to the book, to the inspired, infallible, written Word of God, and let it have its perfect work within you. You see, this is what Paul himself was so passionate about. You know how I know this? Turn to the uh, second chapter of this letter, First Thess chapter 2. The Apostle Paul actually commends the church for having his view of Scripture. And, and listen to what he says to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. You, we've read this one over and over and over again because it is so important. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men. This is no mere word to us, brothers and sisters. This is the Word of God. How else? A jump up and down on it. This is the Word of God. He's talking about one Puritan. I forgot which one it was. Joseph could probably tell us. A Puritan who said, you know, I think it was, uh, I will, I'll botch it up, maybe Goodwin. One of those guys who said that, that, that once he, he illustrated to his church, he took the Word of God and he said, you know, he, he said, uh, you know, God, you can take anything from us. And he went on this whole exposition about, God, you could burn down our houses. You could kill our children. You could take our lands. You could take our spouses. You could take our goods. But whatever you do, do not take away your word from us. That would be unbearable. We could lose everything, but if we lose the word of God, we are lost. And that's the truth. You could be stripped down. From everything that you hold dear, life and providence can send you down a path of life where you have precious little, but if you have the Word of God, you have everything. Don't you see? Because the Word of God is the mind of God. We get access into the mind of God, the revelation of God, the will of God. And so when Paul says, you received it for what it really is, what he's saying is that this is the metaphysics of Scripture. This is what Scripture is in reality, even if you're dull to it, even if you're blind to it, numb to it, even if you've neglected it, even if you've become irresponsible with it, even if you're lukewarm about it, even if you've lost sight of it or you've become desensitized to it, it is the Word of God. This is God's Word to us. And that's why it's able to perform its work in us who believe. And so over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul insists that the church set before the church the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, our church will never, by God's grace, will never become anything other than the Word of God. 
In other words, we will never be any other centric thing. It will always be, by God's grace, heritage grace, Christ-centered, Scripture-centered, biblically saturated, right? Because the only way that we could that we could properly honor and glorify and worship our great God and give Him glory for who He is and give Him the preeminence in our church. So I'm going to rattle off some scriptures for you out of the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy, and here they are. To underscore and to underline the importance of setting before the church the Word of God, which is what the letter was. He's, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 4, he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Watch this now. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Jump down to verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Keep reading. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance of the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Here it is. Ready? Take pains with these things. You ever feel like church is taking too long? <laughs> this is my verse. <laughs> this is my comeback. Take pains with these things. Sit in the pew until it hurts. Be absorbed in them. The weak is long and you're absorbed in a lot of other things. And for a brief moment of your little life, every Lord's Day, you come in here and be absorbed in this. Right? It's like a confession. Oh God, I need to be saturated in this for the next couple of hours. Next couple of hours, which will go by like that. Be immersed in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay cl- close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. I have no time to exposit that. Look at chapter Second uh, Timothy. You're probably waiting for this one. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture, including the letter that Paul is saying, read this to the brethren. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Notice what the Word of God is for, brothers and sisters. It is not for building a rock climbing wall outside the church and six flags over Jesus. It is for reproof, correction, Training in righteousness. This is God's chisel and anvil in his heart. He's chiseling away all that is not conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And his word is his weapon or his tool of choice in your life. So that, oh man, so that you will be immovable. So that you will be adequate, equipped, for every good work. Self-sustained. There's a measure of self-sufficiency. There's a measure of resilience about the Christian. You can stand because you're standing on the rock. And that's what the Word of God is for. Last thing, brothers and sisters, I'm so glad it ends like this. Look at verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Plural. 
meaning all the church, all the brethren, everyone, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I had to repent this week because I thought about this simplicity of this verse and I thought, how much exposition am I going to get out of that? And then I was greatly rebuked by Scripture because I thought as I was getting into it, there is so much here. There is so much here. There's a whole other sermon just right here. Because this stresses both the necessity for grace and the source of grace. Grace is what we need. But, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul puts it just right. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not just amazing grace and so we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Let's modify, as some people already have, that, that hymn to make sure that we specify that it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved a wretch like me. In other words, we dare not simply take the virtue, the divine virtues of God, whether grace, whether love, whether mercy, we dare not personify them themselves so as to basically deify them. Have we, haven't you heard this? This is all over our culture. Grace is strong enough. I I hear songs, Christian songs. Love will find a way. Or maybe the favorite one of all. The power of faith. Okay, not to be uh, too strict or legalistic or too, you know, uh, too stringent here. Maybe spoken in a proper context or said in the context of something you've already specified what the grace of God really is. But these have become an essentially, essentially moral maxims even of the culture, right? Well, he's got a strong faith. Okay, but what is that faith connected to? What is the source of that faith? I, sometimes I want to kick my television when people talk about the power of faith. Faith is nothing without the object of faith and the source of faith. The object of faith is God. The source of faith is the same. It comes from Him. It is a gift. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. Mercy is a gift. Love is a gift. Kindness is a gift. These are all gifts, virtues of God, characteristics of His nature. If we don't have that, what we end up having is what Michael Horton called in Christless Christianity, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Exactly right. It's exactly what the, church, what the world can have if we just leave it at that. Grace. Oh, this person needs grace. Oh, the grace of God, brother. Unless we begin to specify what we're talking about, we can easily turn this into some moralistic message. Moralistic just basically means you pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. It's your own personal effort that does it. Therapeutic has nothing to do with sanctification. It has to do with just eliminating a certain negative state of mind. Therapy. And it's essentially deistic. You know what deism is? Deism just means that God is really not involved. He's not personal. He's not eminent. It's not Him doing it. It's just kind of a principle or a force or a power that's out there. And what happens if we're not careful is we turn these divine virtues into these sort of mystical principles that operate like good luck charms over our life. But that's not what they are. 
Brothers and sisters, there's one little difference in this text, and it's all the difference in the world, is it not? It is one little difference of the grace of, uh, that he's talking about here, and it's Christ. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ with his church, and in turn the church seeking Christ, serving Christ, worshiping Christ, thirsting for Christ, longing for Christ, and exalting Christ. In other words, he is personally involved in ministering to his church. But far and above anything that we can do for him, brothers and sisters, what grace does is it reminds us for what everything God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That is what grace reminds us. It reminds us of how impotent we are and it reminds us of how powerful and able he is. It reminds us that all of our work has amounted to a hill of beans. And all of his work has amounted to everything, everything that you will ever need in your life and more. He is the way to paradise. Christ is the living water. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our peace. He is our safety, security, and strength. It's his grace that gives us access to all of this. But an emphasis on the grace of Jesus is an emphasis on the gospel. There is no gospel without grace, and there is no grace without the gospel. If the church will survive, it must do so by daily meditating, receiving, and proclaiming the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we will find in the grace of Christ is Christ's own loveliness, His own beauty, and His own glory. Oh! Through the grace of Jesus Christ, you come into contact with Jesus Christ Himself. His person and His work. His nature. Isn't it beautiful? I remember getting saved. 19 years old, there I was. Pitiful, loathsome, vile creature. Kneeling at the corner of a bed. And I had an image in my mind's eye, not a vision, relax. Wasn't an oracle. But I had a thought that crept into my mind. I saw, as it were, the Lord Jesus standing over me in that room. And what I couldn't get out of my mind was the unspeakable reality of what the grace of God was proclaiming to me. That me, as loathsome, vile, and worthless of a creature as I was in His sight, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ, Jesus looked down on me with a look, not of judgment, but a look of pity, mercy, kindness, love, compassion. That's what's amazing about grace. It's that the grace that we experience salvifically is the grace that emanates from the person, Jesus Christ, who has the ability by His grace to redeem us as loathsome and wicked and worthless and worm-like as we really are. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank God it's not just grace. Thank God it's grace of Jesus Because I know what Jesus did for me. Grace is not just some abstract, you know, sort of nebulous force out there in the universe working. But I know what Jesus did. Jesus 
We just celebrated it. In his body, he lived a perfect life for that loathsome creature that is down there at his feet begging for mercy. It is Jesus Christ who hung on a cross for that loathsome creature down there begging for mercy. And it is Jesus Christ himself who will come back one day as the resurrected King, Lord of Lords, and King of Kings. The grace of God humbles us into the dust because it reminds us we are not able. Total depravity. Grace means you're totally depraved and total depravity means you cannot do anything for yourself. And if it were not for the sovereign grace of God, you would be left there in that state, that vile, wicked state that you were in. But by the grace of God, He has made us to differ. That's it. That's it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, He says, be with you, brothers and sisters. Put your hand under the end of those words. Be with you. In other words, it's to travel with you. It's to be taken up. It's to be taken with you. It's to be taken into you. It's to be taken into your heart, your bosom, your soul. It's to be displayed over your life. We cannot grow, mature, live without grace. We dare not strive or battle or minister apart from the grace of God. And we will, we will surely not stand but by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, grace is not to be abused, neglected, or taken for granted. It is to be treasured. It is to be adored. It is to be loved. And so we'll end with this. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Paul reminds us of a proper view of the grace of God. In Paul's words, without the grace of Jesus Christ, we would all be heretics. And Christ's death would be meaningless. I say heretics because the only place to go if we abandon grace is legalism. But that would make us a heretic. And that's what Paul is saying is at stake. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Here it is. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ keeps the gospel the gospel. And that's what we need if we are to be saved. Let's pray. Father, I need your grace. We need your grace. Every day and every moment, every season, whether we're up or down, whether things are looking good or looking bad, whether we're beneath a frowning providence or whether we're beneath a Friendly providence, as long as it, as much as it may appear to us. Grace is for all of life. And oh God, forgive us when we neglect your grace, abuse your grace, when we forget about your grace, 
when we think even for a moment, even for an instant, that this walk is about our own effort and that our righteousness is something of our own doing. May you remind us that the grace of God has assured us that it is not because it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again for His people. Thank you for your marvelous grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.